0: The faithful shepherd leads all of the lambs. We can follow the faithful shepherd. That's a wonderful, wonderful promise. I will be with you to the end of the age. Praise God uh, for that. May we remember what we've just just heard. 1 Peter, this morning, once again, chapter 3, and uh, where... Peter begins to address wives and their submission to their husbands. And Peter's been going through all these different realms of authority. You know, he went through the civil authority and then slaves and masters. And now he's going through wives and their husbands. And you remember there in verse 1 of chapter 3, Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands. I emphasize that likewise connection quite a bit. And I'm not going to review all this in detail, but there are higher principles which apply to all these situations in First Peter chapter 3, including a husband's proper treatment of his wife, down in verse 7. Verse 7 begins, Husbands, likewise, we have that likewise again, dwell with them with understanding. So ladies, you must see your submission to your husband's in the context of those higher principles that we considered. To be submissive, of course, means to obey your husband's authority. And I've I've mentioned the word obey is an ugly word in our culture. And this word is being written out of our English vocabulary. The idea of submitting to authority is onerous to much of our culture. And it is viewed as being degrading. To submit to authority is degrading of a person. And uh, so we are obviously swimming against the stream here, trusting God's Word about our relationship as husbands and wives. But that's what be submissive means. It means to obey your husband's authority. To follow his leadership, Ephesians 5.24, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. And I can't say everything in one message. That's why this is the third message as we march through the text. But there will be balance. So just just hold on. Uh, follow me here. Ladies, as the church is subject to Christ, ladies, your submission should look like the church's submission to Christ. That's something that's done willingly. Okay? That's something that's done for safety and protection, Being under authority is to be safe. And children, you're under the authority of your parents, and that's a very safe thing. And as we are under the authority of the elders of our church, there's four of us, but we're under one another's authority, just like all the rest of you. That's a very safe place for us to be, under the authorities of the elders of a church. That's a safe place to be. And we experience that when we go out after each other. And so, wives, your submission to your husbands, you should see it in that light. This is a safe place for you to be. And the other thing, uh, my wife and I used to use this expression, and it was, the church is a seeking submission. In other words, how does the church submit itself to Christ as a head? She seeks Him. It's a seeking submission. She doesn't run away and say, I hope He just leaves me alone as much as possible. No, the church submits to Christ. We pray. We say, Christ, you're our head. You're the head of this church. Show us what to do. Tell us how to spend this money we collected this morning. You're the head of this church. That's a seeking submission. And that's your goal as wives in your relationship with your husband, that that you will engage in this seeking submission as a church seeks her Lord and Savior. How often do you ask your husbands for direction, for input? That's an example. You know, how often do you do that? Ask your husbands for direction or input. What, what should I do in this situation? Husbands, you need to be available when your wives do that. If your wives say, honey, let's, can we talk about this situation? And, and husbands, you need to be available. You need to thank God that your wives are asking you for input and wisdom. That's a seeking seeking submission. You know, it is fairly common for believing wives that they do desire their husband's leadership. Believing wives, by that I mean those that love the Scripture and love the Lord of the Scripture, these women often desire the leadership of their husbands. And the problem in our culture often is is the roles get reversed and the husbands don't lead and the wives start leading. But men, you know, I would say most of your wives and most of the wives in this congregation, they desire your leadership. They do. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. And so you should lead. And your ladies, it should be a seeking submission. Now, we've, we discussed last week that that husbands are not the Lord of their wives consciences only the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of the conscience all other authorities are under him and so you can't rule your wife by dominating and simply ruling her conscience you need to be more nuanced than that and of course the only fear where wives ought not to submit to their husbands is if their husbands are calling them to sin directly, to sin against God, to sin against the clear commandments of Scripture. You know, if the husband is calling you to sign a fraudulent tax return, I mean, these are simple examples, but no, you can't do that, right? Ladies, you can't do that. You know, it's more difficult if you're married to an unbelieving husband, that's more difficult. But you'd have to disobey that unbelieving husband and say, I can't sign a fraudulent tax return. I mean, what if it's worse? What if you're, you're married to an unbelieving husband and you're pregnant and he wants you to have an abortion? You can't do that. And that's where you need to be part of a church <laughs> to help you go through that. Those are the kinds of things that are happening to Christian women in our culture. And we as churches need to be ready and supportive for those kinds of situations. So no, your husband is not Lord of your conscience. There are places where, where no, you have to obey Christ and not your husband. You have to do that respectfully. You have to explain to him. You've got to explain to him why you're doing it. Just like if, if we disobey the civil authorities, we have to explain to them why in a particular situation we're going to disobey a civil authority. We've got to explain that. And every time you're in one of those temptations, those situations, it's actually an opportunity for witness. Because you're confessing Jesus as Lord. And you say, you, know, you say to your employer, when your employer asks you to lie, I mean, that happens all the time. That happened to me multiple times. The employer asks you to lie. That's opportunity for witness. You don't say, well, no, I just won't lie. You say, you know, the Lord who bought me with His precious blood commands me not to lie. You see, that's how you do it. You bring Christ. You're not just a moralist, obeying a set of rules. You're following Jesus Christ who bled and died for you. And so the Lord, the Lord who bled and died to save me, commands me not to lie, so I can't do it. So no, you can't bow the conscience that way. So so we concluded last week By introducing this matter that God's commands to wives and husbands cannot be fully obeyed without the operation of the gospel in your lives. We need the good news of the gospel operating in our lives really in order to properly fulfill the commands And that's what I want to spend at least half of this message on this morning. Many people don't think such until they get married. And then they discover differently. They discover differently. I don't know what it is about going out on all those dates and never having a conflict on all of those dates. You know what I'm going to say. (laughs) Then you get married and the conflicts begin. You're laughing because you know that's true. You know, the when you're dating a guy or a gal, man, that's probably the least way to be able to really get to know them. <laughs> that's too negative. Okay, but they're always on you're always on your best behavior, you know. And 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 the men, you know, ladies, men will put up with anything when they're in the dating phase, okay? They, they'll just put up with anything. Because they want the gal. And so you got to be careful. You know, men will just put up. They'll put up with anything during the dating phase, just about. But then once they get married, they go, you know, i got to do this the rest of my life. <laughs> I'm just being blunt and realistic. And the gospel gives us help. And that's the point is I need God's grace big time to be a submissive and respectful wife. I need God's grace big time to be a loving husband and a leader. Yes, in order to obey those commands, we need the gospel. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. You cannot know and understand or follow that command Without the gospel, the relationship between Christ and church. Husbands, love your wives. What? As Christ loved the church. Well, I mean, if you don't know the gospel, you'll never understand or be able to do that command. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. The only way to really get onto that program is a deep experience with the gospel that reveals Jesus Christ to you, men. That's the only way. You cannot know and understand or follow such a command without the gospel. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And this is a very, very significant text about our subject here of, of husbands and wives and submission and, and leadership. Genesis three, sixteen through 17. Now, I better preface this with this. In, in what follows, I'm not saying that the husband and wife roles were changed after the fall. Okay? I'm not saying that in what I'm about to say. The roles of husband and wife were set before sin entered. Okay? It wasn't the entrance of sin that brought along the command of wives submit to your husbands. Okay? So, don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm not an egalitarian in that way. Okay, Genesis 3.16. By the curse. The passage here, is, of course, is the, is the curse. and Genesis 3.16 is the Lord speaking to the woman. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay, that, the Lord addressing the woman. By the curse, the Lord imposed great difficulty on Adam's particular area of responsibility, that of obtaining food from the ground, to feed his family. To Adam he said, cursed be the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Okay, so Adam's unique responsibility in this family relationship has been made much more difficult as a result of this curse. The Lord also imposed pain on Eve's particular area of responsibility, the bearing of children. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. A different translation. We'll talk about that in a moment. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So there has... There has been a major discussion here as to what is meant by Eve's desire. Your desire shall be for your husband. What does that mean? And it doesn't mean sexual. Okay, if you take that phrase and go up, you might attach it to, well you're gonna desire sexual relations with your husband and therefore you're gonna have more children and have more pain but no that phrase is contrasted with the following verses your desire shall be over your husband but he shall rule over you so it's pretty clear it goes with the latter those two latter phrases are contrasted And it and it's not a discussion here about our sexuality so What what does this mean? Without a 20-minute discussion, it has become clear that the identical sentence structure is used in Genesis 4, chapter 7, regarding sin's desire to master Cain. In Genesis 4, 7, the Lord says to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. The phrase, and its, sin's, desire is for you, describes sin's attempt to control and dominate Cain. There's going to be this struggle. The Lord says, Cain, sin is at the door and it wants to control and dominate you, but you should master it. So we have the identical structure in Genesis 3.16. So in 3.16, the phrase, Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. The meaning is, Eve will seek to master or control her husband, yet he will rule over her. There will be a struggle for mastery in the family. Now, other translations bring out this understanding of the text. The ESV goes like this. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. The New English translation emphasizes a different word, which we also need to talk about. The New English translation, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. Okay. That word rule over you, he will rule over you, is really a strong word. Okay? And that's why the NET translated this, he will dominate you. Now, what you need to understand here is the second phrase, but he shall rule over you, is not a license for men to dominate women. All these new conditions resulting from the curse are negative. In other words, that's going to be the negative tendency of the man. The wrong tendency of the man is going to be to dominate over his wife and the wrong tendency of the woman is going to be contrary and try to master over her husband. These are all negative. So that second phrase isn't, okay, we're going to reaffirm the husband's headship, you know. No, that, that is a negative. All of those are negatives. In other words, the ground cursed is a negative. The excessive toil That's now required is a negative. The thorns and thistles that grow is a negative. The pain in childbirth is a negative. The woman's desire to control her husband. That's a negative. The husband's use of his greater strength to dominate the woman. That's a negative. These are all negative. The negative results of the curse is what these are. So, this is what will unfold due to their rebellion, and indeed it has, hasn't it? Hasn't it? Absolutely. The history of the human race has unfolded exactly like what this text says, both regarding men and women. It, it, it has. Now, assuming this is a correct understanding of Genesis 3.16, I would caution wives and husbands as follows. Wives, don't assume you don't have a problem with a bent toward unsubmissiveness. This text says otherwise. This text says all the daughters of Eve are going to be like this all the daughters of Eve are going to have this negative, this problem. Now, husbands, don't assume you don't have the problem with a heart bent toward a domineering type of exercising authority over your wives. This text says otherwise. It would be good for us to go into marriage understanding the wisdom of God about our condition as a result of our fall into sin and of the Lord's curse. You both need to be open that you likely have the wrong propensity. Husbands are to love their wives and protect them and live with them in understanding. And they have a tendency to shortcut that and dominate. Just do what I say and keep your mouth shut. Yeah, that's like that's how Christ leads the churchmen, right? (laughs) Is that how Christ leads his sheep in church? No, I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. So this text is very foundational, understanding this situation that we're in. Now You both need to be open. Now, there is hope for both of you. (laughs) There's hope for all of us. I began this section saying, God's commands to wives and to husbands cannot be obeyed without the operation of the gospel in our lives. I've said this because it requires the rolling back of the curse to restore the functioning of this most special relationship. you hear what I'm saying? It requires the rolling back of that curse to restore the functioning of this most special relationship. And that curse is rolled back by the promise of the gospel. The seed of the woman There's a promise given. Most of all this address is is to the curse, but there's a promise given in the Lord's address to Satan that the seed of the woman, Satan, will crush the serpent's head. That's the gospel. There's a promise that what Satan has introduced into humanity through our rebellion is going to be undone. It's going to be reversed. That's the gospel. And that's your hope for your marriage. All right? Go try to do it like a moralist. (laughs) It won't work. Your hope for your marriage is the seed of the woman. Is the seed of the woman that rolls back the curse. And the only way the curse can be rolled back is through the redemption that comes from the seed of the woman. Now, compare Genesis 3.16 with Colossians 3.18. The comparison shows what the gospel does to our relationship as husbands and wives. Genesis 3.16 reads this way, You will want to control your husband but he will dominate you. Contrast that to Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Isn't that that wonderful? How 3.16 by the gospel turns into, rather than trying to be contrary to your husband, Colossians three eighteen: Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord, and rather dominate, dominate, rule, ruling over your husbands. Now, what do we have? Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. That's the difference between Genesis three sixteen and Colossians three eighteen. The difference is the gospel. It's the gospel that turns Genesis 3.16 into Colossians 3.18 and 19. It's the gospel that does that. 3.16a, you will want to control your husband turns into wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Genesis 3.16b, but he will dominate you turns into husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them amen now let's read colossians 3 12 through 19 you go read it for us let's read it that's what prefaces all of the authority roles turn there turn to colossians 3 with me beginning around verse 12 and this is what prefaces the specific roles Therefore, as the elect of God, well, that's gospel, right? (laughs) Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So husbands and wives are to put all of those on. Okay, there's no distinction yet in these commands both of you are to do all of these things bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against one another even as Christ forgave you so you also must do there that you know that's our relationship with anybody and it's doubly our relationship with our spouses do those things learn to do those things You don't need some fancy-dancy five books on psychology of marriage. Do those things. (laughs) And I'm not against some psychology regarding that men are different and stuff. But people are ignoring the Word of God. And why isn't my marriage working? Well, when's the last time you asked your wife's forgiveness? When's the last time you asked your husband's forgiveness? When's the last time you've loved Your wife, like Christ loves the church. When's the last time you've respected your husband's authority? These are wonderful things. Put on tender mercies. When's the last time you returned good for evil? When's the last time you returned a good, kind word when you had received a harsh word? This is not rocket science. (laughs) These commands are simple, they're hard to do, but they're simple to understand. But above all these things, put on love which is the bond of perfection. When's the last time you've cried out to God and said, God help me love my husband? God, help me love my wife. I mean, how far and how much must we be humbled before we start praying like that? It take, hey, it takes a long time. I'm sorry, but that's not because there's anything wrong with the Lord or His Word. How many years into your marriage has it taken? And maybe you're not there yet to when you get on your face before God and pray like that. I'm just talking from my own experience, okay? And we didn't have any good role models or anything. But the gospel overcomes all of that. It overcomes all of it. So let's keep reading here. These are wonderful things there, verses 12 through 14. And let the peace of God, verse 15, rule in your hearts. Not your tempers ruling in your hearts. But, but peaceableness ruling in your hearts. Your hearts need to be ruled. And they need to be ruled by peace. It's amazing here what, what this text says. Peace is the ruler. They're supposed to rule in our hearts. Peace is personified here as a ruler. And just remember that great gospel statement that Zechariah made about the Lord Jesus Christ. He will guide our feet into the way of peace. Because we, don't, we are not peacemakers. Not without Jesus guiding our feet into the way of peace. Well, we, we're not expounding Colossians 3, but it's just Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, so forth, teaching and admonishing one another, psalms and hymns and so forth. Verse 17, and whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your own husbands and so forth. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. You see that? The moralist jumps in at verse 18. He doesn't need all that stuff in front of it. He doesn't need the gospel. No, you need the gospel. And the gospel is fully available to you. The promises are new every morning. All right. Verses 12 through 15, by the way, are Paul's likewise. Peter has his likewise in front of those commands. Verses 12 through 15 are Paul's likewise. Do this, both of you. See, that applies to all of them. And then he goes into the specific roles, the specific authority relationships, on the basis of what is in front of that. I'm not trying to discourage you. I hope I am encouraging you. And the only way is the gospel that's described in those verses. The Lord Jesus is our Savior. Now let's consider specifically where Peter takes us next to consider and if if I drive everything out of your mind by going to this next part of the message, you can go back and listen to it. You know this could have been two messages, but we're going to continue on with Peter there in First uh, Peter chapter three verse one and And Peter takes us now to this very difficult situation of being married to unbelieving spouse. Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Quite a number of you are in this situation, sitting in front of me here this morning. You're, you're in this situation. And when the gospel spreads and adults are converted... This situation of one member of the marriage being converted and one not, that situation arises. This could be a very difficult situation for first century believing women. Darrell Charles summarizes the first century situation like this. But if a wife became a Christian while her husband did not, She was taking a step which was unprecedented and which produced the acutest problems given the absence of any rights for women in antiquity and the absolute obedience to the husband that was expected. That was a rough situation to be in, possibly, in the first century when this was written. Jesus mentions the effect of his mission, that the effect that it will have upon households, saying, remember that? A man's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus said this. Gospel can potentially create great conflict. I mean, we know of a situation where where the husband won't let the kids come to Sunday school. He doesn't want the little kids to come to Sunday school. We've got to help each other out. So, Peter's addressing this situation. Paul deals with this situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 also, doesn't he? And he refers to both cases. That is, meaning unbelieving wife, unbelieving husband. He refers to both cases in 1 Corinthians 7. Peter describes the unbelieving husband as not obeying the Word. He's not referencing the Word in general, like we would reference to the Word of God in general. He means the Word of the Gospel, not obeying the Word. He's not obeying the call and invitations and commands of the Gospel. The New Testament message regarding Jesus Christ as the Savior Lord who saves us through His death and resurrection. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Savior Lord, who saves us through His death and resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The the unbeliever is not bending the knee to the gospel of who Jesus is and calling upon Jesus to save him or her. He's not obeying the Word. And I'll just mention in passing here that saving faith in this text is described as obeying the Word. These husbands who did not obey the Word would not necessarily be harsh, but they certainly could have been. And uh, no doubt, there might be a bit of a connection here to the unjust suffering that we studied in the Peter's letter up above, about servants and masters and other authorities and how Jesus is an example of unjust suffering, that maybe spills over into this situation too where when you're in an unequal yoke, there are times you're going to unjustly suffer or there's going to be unreasonableness there that makes it very difficult. And when you're in that situation, you're following Christ, aren't you? You're following Christ. And um, these are sensitive things. And I want to say this. I am not saying that a spouse is to stay in a house and be subjected to physical abuse. All right? I don't know all of you. Some of you are visiting here today, a few of you. but I don't want to be misunderstood that, that we're saying that if you are in a situation... Well, you're in a physical abuse situation in your marriage. You need to to get help. And before you get out of that situation, you need to get some advice on how to get out of that situation. Because what happens if you just bolt out of there, the abuser can become violent. Okay, so if you are in a situation like that, then get some advice how you get out of that. Okay? So, while we're talking about this, when you're married to an unbeliever, these things happen. These things come up. So, yeah, it does. It probably spills over to suffering unjustly. So that's what triggered it. I'm not saying stay in in a physical abuse situation and suffer unjustly. I'm not saying that. But there's many other things where there will be suffering unjustly in, in certain unreasonable senses. But we're not, I'm not referring to that situation. Now, no doubt, a wife gathering with other Christians for teaching, for worship, for the Lord's table, for prayer and fellowship, and that's what the early church did. And that's what churches today, that's what we should be doing. A, a believing wife gathering with other believers without her husband and yet called to be submissive to him presented many delicate situations to navigate in the first century and in, our, and in our century. Peter does not mention children in this situation. He doesn't. I wish he would have but the word of God is complete. But the fact that a mother's role in that culture of caring for and instructing children could present not only difficult situations but that would present a significant opportunities for the believing wife to sow the gospel into the lives of her children. Think about that. Think about that first century believing wife, that first century unbelieving husband. Those kids most of the time are under the care of whom? Mom. That's that's whose care they're under. Those kids in that first century situation often are under the care of mom. And so mom has an opportunity with those kids, or even with the grandkids. And I know I know a number of you are do that very thing with your grandkids. So if there's children involved, there are opportunities for you ladies and if it's grandchildren then it's ladies and husbands uh, grandmothers and grandfathers to sow the gospel into these children's lives now Peter says that wives in this situation are to be submissive to their own husbands so that here's the reason so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word They may be won over without a word. I imagine that the church could be charged with creating cultural unrest, to use our terminology, for pursuing this goal in the first century. For pursuing this goal of women winning over their husbands to change God. I'm taking you back to the first century for a while. This is like cultural unrest. Peter says the goal here for the believing women with the unbelieving husbands is to win them. (laughs) Meaning, bring them into obedience to the faith. Now that is directly opposed to the husband's idolatry and his choice of God's. So, the early church could be charged. (laughs) You, You see what I'm saying? The wife is not to submit and worship his God anymore. And not only that, she's to win him. She's to try to win him over to worship the true God. You know, only, you'd only find this in the scriptures. I mean, you, you find nothing like this about women in ancient history. Absolutely not. The ladies here are moral agents directly responsible to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's the gospel that liberated women. And this is an example of it right here. She's being called to get her husband to change God is what she's, she's being encouraged to do, and she's been given a little bit of advice on how to go about it. You know, I, I think I know in my life, and <laughs> looking at some of you, I know about six cases where this really works. Unfortunately, I know of many more cases where it hasn't worked yet, but I know of now of like six cases where this is exactly what has happened, how God has worked through the, through the believing wife. Look what he says here. So, so that they may be one without a word. What is the goal here? To win them over is to bring them to the obedience of faith, to use Paul's expression or Peter's expression here, obey the word, obey the gospel. That's the goal. The means to win them reminds us of the old adage that actions speak louder than words. Reminds us of that adage, doesn't it? If any of them are disobedient, if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they observe Your pure conduct accompanied by reverence. That's the method. One without a word. One not by constantly proclaiming the gospel to them, but by the behavior of their wives, including being submissive to their husbands. The unbelieving husband observes the conduct of his believing wife. A real Christian woman's conduct will be markedly different. And the person who lives closest to such conduct will inevitably observe it. This is the means the Lord uses to convert unbelieving spouses. Godly behavior grown up from the soil of the gospel. That's what it is. The things we read in Colossians, which I spent some time on. Respect for authority, not returning evil for evil, but rather good for evil. Quick to forgive others. The Christ-like character described in chapter 2 of 1st Peter, that gospel behavior we went through. The unbelieving husband, like all unbelievers, will search for other explanations of his wife's conduct. John's not here this morning. He's in an unequal yoke. And and I can remember his spouse, first response was, it'll wear off. It'll wear off. (laughs) Second response was, Are you in a relationship with some other woman at that church? Okay. Well, it's been 20 years now and it hasn't worn off. Praise God. Okay. (laughs) And we're praying. We're praying. We're praying for John's wife. Aren't we? We are. So, the unbelieving spouse initially will search for other explanations of his wife's godly conduct. For... If the explanation he knows she will give him, and, and she's obviously shared the gospel enough with him, okay, he's heard it, you know, you're going to share the gospel some, of course, and you're going to share that with your unbelieving husband, but you're going to get to a point where you're not going to fight about it anymore. You're not going to fight about it anymore. And, and if the opportunity comes, or you may seek, but, but you see, the unbelieving husband sees a difference, and, and he knows if her explanation is correct, then I'm in big trouble. Okay, He's going to want to deny your explanation as to why you're different. You're going to say, well, I'm different because Jesus Christ loves me, and He redeemed me. No, that can't be the explanation, because if that's the explanation, then the unbelieving spouse... Knows, I'm lost. If that's the true explanation. And you're just living that explanation out before them. But remember this, men and women. You are walking with God while you're doing that. You are pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. You are following Him. That's what you're doing. And you're following Him in one of the toughest roads. But He's given that to you and he will enable you to glorify him on that road that's what he does and so one without without a word there so okay godly behavior grown up out of the soil of the gospel yeah six cases i can i can think of as i thought about this yeah and don't make don't make the unbelieving spouses Unbelief, a source of constant conflict, if at all possible. Don't do that. Okay. So Peter mentions three overarching behaviors to pursue, being submissive, as we've already discussed. Second, purity. He uses that word. Some translations have chaste. It's not just about sexual purity, it includes sexual purity. But purity, which which is to be that you know, purity of mind, of conscience. Not being willing to sign those fraudulent tax returns, whatever. The word is used where Paul says, Finally, my brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue in them, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You know, in our day, the practical, you know, entertainment's the problem. I hurt for you you that are in an unequally yoke because usually what happens is I can't consider that entertainment anymore. I can't go to that movie with my husband. I I can't do it because God calls me to purity of mind and and you know and so I mean that conflict often comes up in our day in these unequally yokes. It's you know the the entertainment thing you just can't do that as a Christian. You know, and that, probably is, that is probably one of those conscience issues. No, I'm not going to go to that movie. I mean, especially for the men. We're not going to that nightclub anymore, honey. <laughs> uh-uh. See, that's the purity thing, isn't it? Absolutely, that's the purity thing. Purity of mind. So, you who are single, you better think long and hard about not marrying an unbeliever. Just plead with you. God will provide you a spouse. And he'll provide you one without having to violate his word. That's the type of God he is. He's able to make that happen. He's able to provide your spouse and not have to violate his word in order to do that. And you need to believe that with all your might. When you're in the courting age, you need to believe that. He'll do that. For those of you that aren't yet married. All right. You know, I think I'm going to stop. I had a few other things there, but it's a few minutes over. Now, we did start four minutes late, so it's four minutes over. (laughs) Let's pray. Oh, our Father... Your wisdom is different from ours, from what we come up uh, on our own with in these things. And um, help us, Lord, both with understanding. Help us accept your wisdom and not be rebellious children. Oh, Lord, certainly we have been. Thank you that you're committed to us. You forgive us. And you'll always be our Father. You'll never disown us, Lord. Oh, Lord, thank you for, for that. And we know that is solid because you've redeemed us by the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son. And help us, Lord, in practical ways by your Word and your Spirit, your Word and your Holy Spirit, to see the power and the wisdom of trusting You and stepping out to obey these commandments. Thank You for the blessings You've given us. Lord, You've blessed many of us for long periods of time. And by Your grace, that's the only reason we persevered. We thank You, You who are our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray in Your name. Amen.